go, everybody. It is another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a football Thursday. Not able to do football Friday this week. Got a big member guest golf tournament this weekend that starts tomorrow. So we're giving you a football Thursday show. Starting out with Peg by Steely Dan. Tribute to uh, the late, great Walter Becker. Uh, the duo, uh, along with Donald Fagan, behind Steely Dan. Big show to get to. We've got Major League Baseball as the pennant races and wild card races heat up. We've got, of course, the NFL kicking off tonight between the Patriots and the Chiefs. And then a full slate of games on Sunday. Two Monday night games. We'll give you three games that we like this week uh, against the spread. Uh, and a little college football as well. But we start with baseball and uh, the saga that is the Yankees and the Red Sox. So now there are uh, accusations of uh, stealing signs by using Apple watches uh, on the part of the Red Sox. Uh, apparently the Red Sox use signs, uh, use, sorry, the Apple watches to steal signs against the Yankees uh, in the series, uh, I guess over the weekend. Didn't really work, apparently. Um, that well, but uh, in any event, uh, and now the Red Sox are claiming that they have evidence that the Yankees cheated, and of course the Yankees vehemently deny it. I, I mean, listen, this stuff is really not that interesting to me. I'm sure if you're a Yankee fan, you're furious, and I get it, rightfully so. Um, you know, and now of course people are saying that you know, yeah, you talk about the Patriots cheating, you know, the Red Sox now cheating. You know, what is it? Is something in the water up there in Boston? I, Listen, nobody dislikes the Patriots more than I do. I don't know that you can necessarily draw a parallel between the Red Sox cheating and the Patriots cheating. Two completely different sports, two completely different organizations. Um, And by the way, uh, for all you Celtics fans out there, it's widely known that the Celtics used to try everything in the book uh, as far as gamesmanship was concerned back in the 80s. You know, uh, basically, you know, not air conditioning uh, the visiting locker room when they would play in the playoffs. And, you know, it'd be about 100 degrees in there. Uh, you know, there were obviously reports of various spots on the floor, the old parquet in the old Boston Garden where, you know, there were dead spots that, you know, the Celtics knew where they were and the opponents didn't. And I mean, so, I mean, look, listen, this gamesmanship stuff's been going on for years in all sports. Uh, now, when you add a layer of technology to the mix, um, you know, listen, I get it. It's probably a problem, um, you know. But guys have been stealing signs for you know the, since the dawn of time in Major League Baseball. So you know now, of course, in the advent with the advent of technology, it's probably maybe easier um, and or more accurate uh, as far as the signs that teams steal. I don't think it's a big deal. What is a big deal is the game the other night where the Yankees were up six one on the Orioles and the Red Sox were losing six one, and the Yankees ended up losing that game in heartbreaking fashion on a two-out, two-run homer by Manny Machado off the newly minted closer for the Yankees, Dallin Batances, because Chapman had been struggling so much. Uh, and Batances had been doing a good job in that role up until that night. I mean, that's just a brutal loss if you're a Yankee fan. Two outs, no one on, walks a guy in front of Manny Machado. You, you just can't do it. I mean, you, you just can't. And we talked about it on, I think, last week's show. Machado is now raging hot. Uh, after a very slow, probably first five months, four months of the year, uh, you know, batting average up into the 270s, when he was sitting at about 230 for a lot of the year. Now he's over 30 home runs. I think he's in the 90 RBI range. Um, 
you know, he's just, listen, I we said it back during the WBC. He's a wonderful, wonderful player, MVP candidate every year because he's great with the glove and he's a great hitter. Uh, and now he's raging hot. And that makes that Orioles lineup even more dangerous because they've not gotten great years out of Chris Davis and Mark Trumbo. Uh, but Adam Jones has had a good year. Uh, Wellington Castillo, their catcher, has had a good year. Um, who's the other guy that I'm thinking of? Uh, shoot. Anyway. Oh, Jonathan Scope has had a huge year for them. So the second baseman. Uh, from, uh, from Curacao, I believe, which is also where Kenley Jansen is from and Didi Gregorius is from also. Um, pretty interesting. And that's where Andrew Jones uh, was from as well. Uh, which is a, a Netherlands-controlled, uh, I guess, island or whatever municipality. Prince, I, I'm not exactly sure what the term is, um, but that's why you have those guys playing for Netherlands in uh, the WBC. Anyway, so huge turn of events there. Yankees up 6-1 in their game. Red Sox down 6-1 in their game. Red Sox come back to win in 19 innings and then won again last night behind Doug Fister, who, by the way, uh, Mets fans, yes, that's the same Doug Fister that the Mets eschewed uh, under the sage Sandy Alderson back when the Mets were still trying to, to piece something together and thought that they might still contend for the great Tommy Malone, you know, soft-tossing lefty who hasn't been good in five years um, because I think probably Doug Fister wanted $10 more than Tommy Malone who was thrilled just to get a contract. So, uh, listen, Fister did struggle early for the Red Sox. He's been great for them lately. And this is a guy that, you know, not that long ago pitched big games in the playoffs uh, for the Tigers um, against the Yankees. So, uh, he pitched great last night. Um, the Red Sox won. The Yankees game got rained out. So now it's four uh, games back for the Yankees. Still three in the loss column, but that was a huge turn of events. I mean, if you're a Yankee fan, you think you're going to be you know, two games after the night's over, and instead you lose a heartbreaking game, 7-6, and the Red Sox win in 19, and then came back and won the next night, which is not easy to do. And Fister gave them seven great innings, which they needed because obviously they used a million guys out of the bullpen. Now listen, I get it. The... With the rosters expanding to 40, which is the dumbest thing in the world, by the way. It makes no sense. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. You know, let's, let's play five months out of the year by one set of rules, and then let's play the last month, which is the most important month of the year, by a completely different set of rules, which is by expanding the rosters. Now, you want to expand the rosters to 40, that's fine. You should only be able to have – this should be like the NFL. You know, in the NFL, you have 53 guys, but you only have 45 active on game day. It should be the same thing with Major League Baseball. If you want to expand the rosters to 40 – and reward some kids for having good years in the minors, that's fine. But you should not be able to be, have access to all 40 of those players on game day. You should be able, you know, you should pare it down. It's normally 25, should maybe 30. And that's it. Because, I mean, it just, it, it's, it's just silly. It makes no sense. I mean, baseball is weird. We talked about this last time. I mean, the postseason and regular season have nothing to do with each other. And in the most important month of the year, you play by a completely different set of rules. Makes no sense. So, uh, you know, that's almost like the equivalent of like a two-shot swing in a golf tournament where, you know, one guy's up uh, and he's playing, you know, you're basically in match play and, you know, a guy birdies a hole and the, the leader bogeys and now, or vice versa. I mean, that, that, was, that was a huge turn of events. So, um, we'll see. Yankees get back on. Let's see who they've got coming up now. Uh, let's see, the Yankees, okay, how about, yeah, that's, that's good, nice job, ESPN, stink as usual, this website, okay, they're still, oh, that's right, so they got rained out last night, so they're playing, uh, today, day game at Baltimore, 
just an important series for both the Yankees and the Orioles. Uh, you know, the Yankees hammered um, Bundy, I think, in the first game. Um, you know, obviously, uh, the second game uh, was uh, brutal because they lost that game, as we just talked about. So this is uh, this is an important game. It's um, Sonny Gray versus Kevin Gosman. Obviously, advantage Yankees, by the way. You know, come on, Orioles fans. You, you, your team got back in the mix. You know, the, the half the place is filled with Yankees fans. I mean, you know, listen, I went to school down there. You're kind of my peeps. I, I, you know, I'm rooting for you. I'm pulling for you. But you got to do better than letting half your stadium get filled with the Yankees fans. I, I mean, you know, I, I could understand if, you, if your team was out of it, but you're right back in the mix here. I mean, let's see. Let's go to the wild card standings. And the Orioles are... Only a game back of the Twins at 71 and 68. And you're only, let's see, how many games back? Four games back of the Yankees. So you win today, you're three games back. You could you could make that up to get to that first wild card. Now, I don't think you will because your starting pitching is wretched. Um, but, you know, again, you could piece it together with the expanded rosters now. And, you know, if Gosman... And Bundy can kind of they, – they were kind of hot, although, you know, they, they, they obviously didn't have – Bundy didn't have a good game against the Yankees the other day. But, you know, pitched better lately. Um, they got Jeremy Hellickson from the Phillies. He had pitched well. He got smashed around the other night by the Yankees in that game that they ended up coming back to win. Uh, but he had pitched well for the Orioles. You know, now you got Zach Britton back. You've got O'Day. You've got Brock. I mean, the, 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 the bullpen is pretty good. So we'll see. But, I mean, come on. Go, go support the team. I understand it might be rough today because it's a day game and it was, you know, to make up for rain out. But um, important game uh, for the Orioles and the Yankees. So Yankees still firmly entrenched in the first wild card. Twins, uh, three games back in the loss column. Give them credit. Still hanging around at 72 and 67. Now the Indians, of course, have blown everybody out of the war. They've won 14 games in a row. And right now, you know, if you're going to start the playoffs today, the Indians are the team you do not want to face. I mean, Carrasco's pitching great. Salazar's pitching great. Corey Kluber, who's now firmly in the mix as a potential Cy Young Award winner with Chris Sale coming back to the pack a little bit lately, uh, has been pitching great. Trevor Bauer has been pitching great. I mean, they've got four legit good starters. And Andrew Miller has been hurt uh, right now. So he should be back for the playoffs, which will make that bullpen even better again and deeper again with Shaw and Allen. And then you add Andrew Miller to the mix. That's that's they are a formidable bunch, and they're hitting the hell out of the ball. You know, I mean, Santana's hitting, Lindor is hitting, Ramirez is hitting. They got Jay Bruce; he's been a nice addition to for that team. Um, they're just, I mean, right now the Indians look like the cream of the crop in the American League. Forget the Astros. Uh, by, by the way, I'm predicting right now the Astros will lose in the first round of, the, of their their first round playoff. I just don't trust their pitching. They're starting pitching. I mean, I understand Keuchel could, could maybe take that team, put it on his shoulders. And they did get Justin Verlander, which is huge for them. He's, a, he's been a great second-half pitcher the last few years. He's not the dominant Cy Young Award Justin Verlander from three or four years ago, five years ago, but he's still pretty good. And that was a good, ballsy, gutsy pickup for them. That's sort of, you know, listen, they're going for it, so kudos to them. They got crushed that they didn't go for it at the June, July 31st trade deadline. But then they got him at the August 31st waiver trade deadline. So, uh, And they had a big enough lead um, in their division where it wasn't that much of an issue. So that does kind of 
make me sort of gives me pause, but I'm still going to predict an upset that the Astros aren't getting out of their first round. Um, you know, listen, maybe they'll make me look silly because their lineup is ridiculous. It's the best lineup in baseball by any measure. I mean, best batting average on base percentage, slugging percentage, home runs, RB, I mean, the whole thing. So most runs scored. Um, but for some reason, I'm just predicting them to go out in the first round. Uh, because, you know, listen, I mean, the, the Indians are raging hot. Now, there's still three weeks left. A lot can change. Still 20-something games left. So we'll see. But uh, I'll be looking forward to the American League postseason for sure. National League, not so much. Speaking of which, Cardinals are doing Cardinals things, making a late run here. Um, let's take a look again at the uh, NL wildcard standings. So the Diamondbacks have gotten ra- raging hot too. They've won 13 in a row. Uh, so they're they they're firmly entrenched as the first wild card. The Rockies uh, have been the opposite; they've not played well lately. Uh, they are down only nine games over 500. So the Cardinals are now only two games back of the Rockies for that second wild card spot. But the Cardinals are also alive and in the mix for uh, the division in the Central because you know the Cubs. Again, I say this every every week. Every time you think the Cubs are going to take the bull by the horns and run away with that thing. They don't. So now, look, they've got a four-game lead, so it's somewhat comfortable. Um, you know, it's interesting. Do the Cubs and the Cardinals play each other? I would imagine they've still got to play each other at some point before the rest of the season is over. Let's see here. Let's see. When did the Cubs and the Cardinals play? Hopefully there's some good interleague games, though. Um, let's see. Schedule. Let's go to St. Louis. We'll just check out their schedule the rest of the year. Are you kidding me? They're done with the Cardinals? I mean, the Cubs? The Cubs and the Cardinals do not play again this year. Good job, schedule makers. That's, that's smart. Well done. Well done. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at the wrong thing. Okay, my bad. Let's just let's take a look here, shall we? See if we can get. All right, here we go. August, September. All right. So, yes, they play three in Wrigley. One, two, three. September fifteenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth. So that'll be a big series. And then they host the Cubs for four. One, two, three, four. All right. So they got seven games left with the Cubs. My apologies, schedule makers. I looked at the wrong thing. Um, and also, they the last two games, the last three games, they host Milwaukee, which are also important because Milwaukee is right there in the mix, too. And they have two at Milwaukee. Uh, no, sorry, they've already played those games. So, seven against the Cubs, two against the Brewers. So, they control their own destiny. Be interesting to see. I mean, just when you think the Cardinals are dead, here they come. They are annoying. God, they are annoying. I mean, you have, to, you have to tip your cap to them. I mean, they look for all the world like this is going to be finally just a lost year for them. And then, you know, they pick themselves up and dust themselves off, and, and they're right back in the mix. They are the antithesis of the New York Metropolitans Baseball Club. I mean, they are the exact opposite. 
And, you know, if you heard Sandy Alderson's comments the other day, his sort of state of the Mets, uh, it didn't really uh, engender a lot of confidence that, that this guy knows what, A, knows what he's doing, has any imagination or creativity whatsoever, uh, and B, that the Mets are going to spend the money necessary next year uh, to improve the team dramatically. So um, we could probably expect more of the same. I mean, listen, get ready for, for Nori Aoki as your starting day right fielder next year. A 35-year-old, you know, listen, the guy's not a bad player. He's okay as a fourth, maybe fifth outfielder on a good team. But with Conforto having the surgery this week, guess what? Nori Aoki will be your opening day right fielder, Mets fans. Just get ready for it because he's under contract for next year. And, you know, he's like a 280 hitter with no power, really. He's not a big walk guy, kind of a slap singles hitter. Um, again, on a good team, he's a fifth outfielder. But he will be starting right field for the Mets on opening day. And batting first or second, too, by the way. Because Terry Collins, very wisely, is not batting Brandon Nimmo first or second, even though he walks in at 17% of the time and has a great eye and has done nothing but walk since he's been in the major leagues. So you wouldn't want to just see if that could continue and bat him first or second when these games are completely meaningless other than to see what do you got for next year. And yet there's Jose Reyes and Aoki batting 1-2 or 1, you know, at the top of the lineup in these meaningless games down the stretch. And Brandon Nimmo hitting 5th, hitting 7th. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Ridiculous. And get ready for Travis Darno and Kevin Ploiecki as your catchers next year. So Alderson basically already came out and said it. God forbid you try to get creative and make a trade. Oh, well, we don't think compared to what's on the market. But, you know, of course. I mean, the lack of imagination and creativity that this Mets front office displays is staggering. And I would be all for, by the way, a platoon of Ligaris and Nimmo in center field next year. I'd be all for it. Ligaris' defense is through the roof. It's so good. And if he could just hit 270 with like, you know, a 750 OPS, he'd be thrilled. And I think he could with, with fairly regular playing time. And Nimmo will walk all the time. Now he's not going to hit for a lot of power. That's fine. He's a quintessential leadoff or number two hitter. What I would do is I would platoon those guys in center, get a real right fielder to sort of caddy just in case. You see, what you sh- see what the, this is what the Mets never do. What they should do is assume the Conforto is going to be out for all of April and then adjust accordingly. So get, go get you know, a solid veteran bat that can play right field and then maybe play another position too, maybe the other outfield positions and or uh, maybe first base. In case Dom Smith struggles, which is highly likely, by the way. I mean, listen, I'm rooting for the guy. I want him to be the first baseman in the future, but there's certainly no guarantees. And to put all your eggs in one basket is is folly. Now, you've got Wilmer there to caddy for him. I get it. I mean, at the very least, Wilmer should play first base against lefties all year next year. The way he hits lefties. And it's his best position defensively. Not that he's great at it, but he's better there than he is anywhere else on the infield. So, but the Mets won't do that. See, they won't do that. They won't get go get like, you know, I don't know, um, like an Andre Ethier who could probably be had next year 
I mean, he's might be at the tail end of his career, but I mean, the guy's been a pretty good major league player. And if you're trying to look for guys that you know you could get for not a ton of dough, that would be one where one place to look. Um, another guy I'd like to see maybe the Mets make a trade for is Jonathan Villar from the uh, Brewers. He's had a bad year this year, but he's a good. He's a, he. If you're not going to bat Nimmo or Lagares lead off, he'd be a perfect candidate to hit lead off. He's got a lot of speed. I think he stole forty something bases last year. He's had a bad year this year. He's played played better. Lately, but he can play the outfield and second base. And maybe you trade a Zach Wheeler or Gesellman for a guy like that. You know, sort of the classic change of scenery trade. Mets won't do any of these things. Get ready, Mets fans. Oh, but by the way, good news, guys. David Wright had shoulder surgery, a rotator cuff surgery. So you can pencil him in to be a starting third baseman in 2019. And the, and, and the New York media can continue to carry his water and, and, and one, print one sob story after the next. How I'm supposed to feel bad for David Wright and his $400 million that he's made. And the guy hasn't had a relevant season since 2008. And he's hijacked and held the mess hostage for three years now about what we're going to do with third base. Because he, he deserves every right to try to come back. No, he doesn't. You're running a team. This isn't a charity. I understand David Wright is a great guy. I have nothing against the guy personally. Okay? I get that. But that doesn't mean you get to basically hold your team hostage while you figure it out and try to make one ridiculous comeback after the next. The guy is done. He certainly can't play third base anymore. He can't throw he had a neck surgery. Now he just had rotator cuff surgery. He hasn't been able to throw for five years, by the way. Anybody remember the World Series with his little lollipop throw across the diamond? Which is why Hosmer decided to try to score in the first place. And yes, I understand Duda made a bad throw home. Good throw. He's got him by four feet. But the only reason Hosmer even attempted that was because the Royals had scouted the Mets and said, David Wright can't throw the ball across the diamond anymore with any zip on the ball. And that was two years ago. So you're going to tell me after rotator cuff surgery and being 36 years old, somehow miraculously his arm's going to come back? I mean, this is a kind of idiocy that we're dealing with, Mets fans. It's ridiculous. So get ready for like T.J. Rivera, who by the way just had Tommy John surgery, as your opening day third baseman. They won't go get Moustakis or try to make a trade for anybody, no. Rosario will be, or maybe it'll be as Drupal Cabrera will be your opening day third base because the Mets will pick up his option. Because we need more slow, lumbering, unathletic players on the Mets. Rosario will be your shortstop. Who knows will play second base. Maybe it'll be TJ Rivera if he can come back from his Tommy John surgery. And Dom Smith will be your first baseman. Darno and Pulwecki be your catchers. You have Cespedes, hopefully he's healthy and left. Who knows will be in center and who knows will be in... Oh, no, sorry, I already said Nori Aoki be right fielder. It's a pretty exciting lineup, isn't it? You get pretty jazzed about that? Ridiculous. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with football right after this.
And we are back here on a Football Thursday edition of Jamal About Sports. Coming to you from the studios of downtown Brooklyn. That was the Stone Roses with Fool's Gold. So we move on to the NFL. We've got uh, the Patriots and the Chiefs tonight. I mean, i got to tell you, I understand everybody's loving the Patriots. Um, you know, they got Brandon Cooks, who's a speedy wide receiver from the Saints in the offseason. Um, you know, Julian Edelman got hurt, but everybody seems to feel, myself included, that probably they won't miss a beat without him. You know, I mean, it, it, I mean, it does happen. I mean, you know, they had Wes Welker, then he went away, and then they had Julian Edelman. It's like, you know, they're like, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, when you hit one guy, one guy goes down, another guy pops up. You know, and then they just traded for Philip Dorsett, who is a, a disappointing, terrible pick, by the way, by the Colts. I think I said it at the time, first-round pick, ridiculous. Um, speedy wide receiver from University of Miami. They just traded for him. They traded their back, their third-string quarterback, uh, Jacoby Brissett, to the Colts for him. So I'm sure he'll flourish, of course, with the Patriots, because that's what they do. They get, they get guys that were bossed to other teams like Kyle Van Noy and Shane McClellan, and then somehow they're productive. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, the perfect example is Deion Branch. You know, Deion Branch was a mediocre receiver for the Patriots, had a great Super Bowl, parlayed that into a ridiculous contract with the Seahawks, stunk it up for the Seahawks, then went back to the Patriots and somehow was good again. But the Patriots are laying nine tonight against the Chiefs? Chiefs are a good team. Nine? It's a big number for the first week. So we'll see. I mean, listen, the Patriots have had some injuries already. I mean, Edelman gone for the year. Shea McClellan gone for the year. Not that he was a huge, you know, not that he's irreplaceable, not by any stretch. But nevertheless, I mean, he was a starting defensive player for them. You know, Ninkovich retired. Um, so we'll see. I mean, again, I don't think their defense is that great, but somehow every year they manage to get the job done. Uh, you know, obviously they were getting shredded by the Falcons in the Super Bowl, and, you know, somehow the Falcons managed to, you know, shoot themselves in the foot there in the fourth quarter, as we all know. But they've got Gronkowski, and they traded for Dwayne Allen, too, as their second tight end from the Colts after losing Martellus Bennett, who's going to go probably terrorize me and torture me when he's on the Packers, I'm sure. <laughs> But before we get to the games, we've got the Ezekiel Elliott saga continues. So the suspension was upheld. I'm sorry. The, the suspension on appeal was upheld. So he's suspended for six games. But because of some sort of, you know, weird arcane rules within the NFL's appeal process, because the ruling on the appeal didn't come until after 4 o'clock on Wednesday, he gets to play this week. Now, I'm sure there's no coincidence with the fact that he's, they're playing the Giants and it's a Sunday night game, right? National TV on NBC. I'm sure there's, that's pure coincidence. I mean, you know what, NFL, you can't have it both ways. You can't make a stand and then pull this garbage. He's either suspended for six games or he's not. I mean, yes, he's going to miss six games. But the fact that he's playing in this game Sunday night is a joke. I wonder if Dallas is playing the Browns on a one o'clock game on Sunday, if uh, somehow they would have gotten their ruling in maybe perhaps before the 4 p.m. deadline, you think? 
fleece. And we've got my Lions playing the Cardinals this weekend. Um, interesting thing I saw today. So two years ago, when the sort of Lions and Matthew Stafford under Jim Caldwell were sort of at their low point, uh, he got pulled from a game that the Lions got blown out in uh, at home. This was the year where they started 1-6 and six and finished the year 7-9. and nine. Um, He got benched. Since that game, uh, in 30 games, he's thrown 50 touchdowns and 15 interceptions. 66% completion percentage. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. This season for the Lions is going to come down to three things. Whether or not they're going to be a playoff team or not. I mean, I look at their schedule. First six games are rough. Home against the Cardinals, at the Giants on Monday night. Home against the Falcons. At Minnesota. Home against Carolina. At the Saints. All NFC games. Split between home and road. Not one gimme in the bunch. Lions somehow come out of that 3-3. Three and three, They'll be a playoff team. The keys for them are the following. Ziggy Ansah needs to stay healthy and be productive and provide pass rush. Because they're not getting it from anybody else. Or they could get it from other guys if he's a force. Because, you know, he'll command double teams and that'll give other free other guys up. That's number one. Number two, the rookie linebacker, Jared Davis, has to, has to show up. He needs to play well. And number three, they've got to create more turnovers on defense somehow. Those guys in the secondary, big play slay. I mean, yes, he had the two huge plays last year. Seal games against the Eagles and the Vikings. Need more of that. I need more than two, three interceptions a year if you're going to be considered an elite cover corner. And he's good. He's a good player. I need more. Got to come from somebody. Nevin Lawson, I love him. The other corner, gritty, tackles, gives every ounce of effort. He's a little guy. Well, he's short. He's not little. He's 5'9", about 195 pounds. He's tough as nails. He hasn't had an interception yet in his career. You know, just, you can't do it. Need more. And then on offense, O-line needs to play well. It should. Obviously, the big question mark is Greg Robinson at left tackle because Taylor Decker is going to miss probably the first six games of the year because he got hurt in OTAs somehow. Had to have shoulder surgery, amazingly enough. Of course, that's just classic lines. When it fought, you know, the Lions went out and got Rick Wagner and TJ Lang to shore up the right side of their offensive line. Getting paid less, by the way, than what Larry Warford and Riley Reef fetched on the uh, open market. Um... They've got Graham Glasgow last year's third-round pick from Michigan playing left guard. Travis Swanson, who had a good year at center last year as a center. And then you figure with Taylor Decker making a very, very good offensive line. Then, of course, he gets hurt in OTAs and some non-contact nonsense. Because we have to have 75 practices between March and July for some reason now in the NFL. So, listen, Greg Robinson, former number two pick. You could probably say, yes, he was a bust. Because if he wasn't, he would still be with the Rams. He looked good in preseason, but that's preseason. You know, he wasn't going against Chandler Jones, who he's going to meet this week. An excellent pass rusher for the Cardinals. If he can hold up and just not be a disaster at left tackle, Mines have a chance. 
He's got to play well. Amir Abdullah has to stay healthy. If he stays healthy, I think he's going to have a big year. And somebody amongst the group of, dare I say, Eric Ebron, Kenny Galladay, Jared Aberderis, TJ Jones, one of those guys needs to step up and be that third option behind Golden Tate and Marvin Jones for Stafford. I mean, theoretical will probably do, do his thing as a great receiving back out of the backfield. Another guy to keep your eye on is Dwayne Washington, rookie seventh-round pick last year. Showed flashes at times, also looked terrible at times last year, didn't know how to read blocks, hit the wrong hole. Um, but he's got all the, all the, 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 the measurables you want. He's 6'1", about 230 pounds, and he runs like a 4-4. And he looked very good in the preseason. And now that's the wild card to me. He could actually be a real difference maker. Because, you know, the Lions last year were a plotting team on both sides of the ball. They didn't really have any game changers, any big play guys. They need big plays. You need big plays in this league to be, you know, that next level team. And certainly Stafford getting hurt with the finger down the stretch last year didn't help. And Darius Slay missing the Cowboys game. And then the right tackle, Riley Reef missing the, the Seahawks game. And then even his backup missed the Seahawks game. The Lions were down at a third string right tackle last year. But listen, that's, unfortunately, that's the way of the world in the NFL. Oftentimes it's a war of attrition. So... First six games, I think, will tell the story for the Lions. They make it through three and three. Hell, not that I love it, but two and four is not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. They started two and four last year. All right, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with some picks right after this. here on a Football Thursday edition of Jamal About Sports. We will wrap the show up with picks. So I gave you a little Lions preview for you, probably three or four Lions fans out there that may listen to this. Um, and now we'll start with that game uh, as our week one game. We uh, Lions, the last line I start getting two. And I will take the Lions here. I know I usually never do this. But frankly, I feel like that's a little disrespectful. They're at home. It's a home opener. They're a playoff team last year. Yes, I understand. They sort of limped into the playoffs, and they didn't put up a great showing in Seattle. Um, but, you know, listen, the Lions always struggle against the Cardinals, so this is probably idiocy on my part. But typically, it's usually – I mean, they never win in Arizona. They have been able to beat Arizona at home. Um, last time they played, as I mentioned two years ago, they got blown, their doors blown off. David Johnson's a handful. Larry Fitzgerald's still an effective receiver. Um, but I don't love the Cardinals secondary at all, other than Patrick Peterson, who I still think is overrated. Um, now that I say that, I'm sure I'll have two pick sixes. But, uh, you know, Teron Matthews is good. The rest of that secondary is not great. Um, I'm going to take the Lions here getting two. Second game, Carolina laying five and a half against the 49ers. Uh, I will take Carolina all day long there. I think they win by a touchdown at least. 
Uh, and then the third game is the Sunday night game. Giants getting six from the Cowboys are going to take the Giants. Um, that Giants defense is very good. Uh, Dallas's defense is not very good. Uh, I think Eli will have plenty uh, of time, even though the Giants offensive line is, is their weak point. Uh, Dallas defensive line, not very good. And, um, you know, everyone loves to talk about Jerry World and the great AT&T Stadium. It provides zero home field advantage. AG, you've heard AG say it a million times. Going in to play a game there is not a big deal. It's not like going to play Seattle or Lambeau or even, you know, the Meadowlands if the Giants are good. The Meadowlands, whatever. MetLife. You know, it's not Pittsburgh. It's not any of those places. It's not Kansas City. So... I'm going to take the Giants game plus six. And finally, actually, a little college football I forgot to mention. So, I don't know if you guys saw the UCLA-Texas A&M game uh, Sunday night, I believe it was. Uh, crazy game. A&M jumps out to a 44-10 lead. UCLA comes back and wins the game. Now, a million things had to go right for UCLA. and A million things had to go wrong for A&M. So, UCLA's quarterback, Josh Rosen, is considered to be probably one of the top three quarterback prospects, along with Sam Darnold from USC and Josh Allen from Wyoming. Um, got off to a miserable start. Some of it was his fault. Some of it wasn't. He wasn't getting a lot of time. He was getting beat up. And to his credit, the kid hung in there. Uh, but uh, he also got extremely lucky. Uh, touchdown that made it 44-31 was an uh, interception that went right through D-back on A&M's hands, right through his hands at the five-yard line, uh, hit the receiver. The receiver was so shocked. Uh, that he almost dropped it and ended up being a touchdown. So it should have probably been a game-clinching interception for Texas A&M. Turns into a touchdown. Um, Second-to-last touchdown the kid threw from UCLA. Uh, same thing. He's under pressure, just basically hurls the ball up into the end zone, a la Brett Favre. You know, he's kind of rolling left, throws back right, just tosses it up. There's three guys from A&M there, but they all kind of slip, and they get boxed out. The UCLA receiver, to his credit, did a nice job kind of boxing them out, got position, and was able to, to, to scoop the ball just before it uh, went, you know, got, get his hands underneath the ball before it hit the ground. It was not a pretty throw. It was kind of a dumb throw. It was a desperate, desperation throw. Ended up being a touchdown. Um, and then A&M, after a long drive and, and a play where their rookie, rookie, their freshman quarterback had to come in because the, the starter got hurt, uh, almost t- takes it down the sidelines for a touchdown. Just barely stepped out at around the 10, took a sack on third down, which didn't seem like it was the end of the world because it didn't knock them out of field goal range, uh, and it kept the clock running, but they got the, 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 the kick got tipped at the line of scrimmage. So they missed the kick, and that would have made it a uh, two-score game, and that would have put, put it away because there was like five or four minutes left at that point in the game. So now, give him credit, he drummed down the field and made a beautiful throw for the game-clinching touchdown, but they also got super lucky. And then, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about my terrors. I mean, 18.5-point underdog, go down to, you know, Austin and play Texas. Now, I understand this is not, you know, vintage Texas under Mac Brown and, and Vince Young and Ricky Williams. I, I get it. And they were coming off three straight losing season. They fired their coach, Charlie Strong, and they hired, you know, the boy wonder genius Tom Herman from, you know, University of Houston, Mr. Offensive Guru. But they were still preseason ranked 23. Probably shouldn't have been, but they were. Because they're Texas and because they got Tom Herman. And the game starts out with a pick six for Maryland. Terrell Pigram, the sophomore quarterback who, you know, does not look like a big-time college quarterback from a, 
you know, physical traits standpoint, small, 5'11". So he throws a pick six on the first series. Maryland punts on the second series on two plays in a row where he's, he's running with the ball, he slips and falls. Maryland, look, it looks like it's going to be a blowout. And then lo and behold, Maryland writes the ship. They get a blocked field goal for a touchdown. But meanwhile, University of Texas did the same thing to Maryland. Texas also had a 91-yard punt return for a touchdown. But they also muffed a kick on a kickoff that Maryland recovered. And then uh, Ty Johnson, Maryland's one of Maryland's stud running backs, who averaged nine yards a carry last year, by the way, uh, returned a, a kickoff 60 yards to set Maryland up on a short field on, on a series which they scored a touchdown. Maryland also missed a 50-yard field goal. I mean, it was a crazy game on special teams. Crazy. And by the way, the fact that Maryland went for that field goal is idiocy. And that's why, I'm, to me, the book is still out on D.J. Durkin. I know everybody's high on him. He's a high-energy guy. He's had good recruiting classes. I get it. His game decisions, his in-game coaching, very suspect to me. I mean, Maryland was up three at the time. Why would you kick a 50-yard field goal? Maryland's kicker isn't any good. And all it does is going to put you up six. So you still what, you, so you lose by one? You either go for it there or you punt. You don't kick a 50-yard field goal. So, of course, you miss it. You give Texas a short field, and they went down. And uh, actually, Maryland's defense actually did end up holding them. But very poor decision. Texas ended up going for it on fourth down. Maryland got a big stop. But then, of course, Pegram got hurt. But then uh, Kasim Hill, line, uh, the Maryland stud freshman quarterback, came in. He's a big kid, like 6'2", 230. On a third and 19, completed a 40-yard pass to D.J. Moore had a huge game, Maryland's best receiver, and then took it in from like the three-yard line for the basically the game-clinching touchdown. So Pegram out for the year with a torn ACL now, it turns out. Um, but a lot of people thought Kasim Hill should have been the starter to begin with anyway. So now we'll see. Maryland plays Towson this week at home. Should be an easy victory. Hopefully you get this Kasim Hill plays well. Get him to gain some confidence. But, I mean, a couple of things that stood out to me for Maryland. They've got some, it looks like they've got some real athletes on defense, finally. And uh, the middle linebacker, Jermaine Carter, lost like 10, 15 pounds the offseason. He looks great. He came free on a blitz early in the game and crushed uh, Bouchelle's, the Texas quarterback. Looks like they got some players maybe in the secondary. The coverage skills were suspect at times. Other times pretty good. But they all look big and fast, and they all look like they can tackle. Uh, J.C. Jackson did have a nice interception early in that game. Granted, it was like on a third and 17, Texas was backed up kind of, you know, in their own end zone. It was basically served as a pump, but you know what? Still helped turn the tide a little bit. And then the offensive line really stood out to me. Maryland's offensive line only gave up one sack. Texas has a good front on defense. They look big and strong. They, you know, created running lanes. So we'll see. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check me out on iTunes, Jamal About Sports. Check me out on Twitter, at Jamal About Sport, no S, and also on Facebook. Enjoy all the football this weekend, and we'll be back to wrap it up on Monday. Until then, peace out.